You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. sermon, I just want to give a really quick content warning. Um, There are going to be mentions of disordered eating, sobriety, and alcoholism today, um, but they won't be the primary focus. So whatever that means for you and your heart today is totally fine. Um, Take care of yourselves. So the meet and greet question was about giving things up for Lent. I grew up always giving something up for Lent. I went to a Lutheran elementary school, and while I don't remember much about their teachings during Wednesday morning chapel, I do remember that there was this social pressure around this time of year. The expectation to give something up for Lent was stronger than that of New Year's resolutions in my young world at the time. This... um, tradition I stuck to for the majority of my elementary, middle, and high school years, and with each new stage of my life came a new understanding or a new reasoning or justification behind giving something up for the six weeks between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. In Lutheran elementary school, giving something up for Lent for me served uh, this purpose of fitting in and making conversation at recess. (laughs) likely forgetting what I had chosen to give up by the time we made it to lunchtime. In middle school, when I transferred into a public school system uh, for the first time, Lent became somewhat of this calendar pillar for me and for my faith and an opportunity to uh, remind myself of the religious practices that I was taught in Lutheran elementary school and a chance to bring up my faith in conversation without feeling pushy, quite honestly. you know, that constant teeter-totter of a budding tween evangelical. (laughs) In high school, choosing to give something up for Lent really ranged for me on the intentionality spectrum, though one theme did remain constant. Whatever I chose had to punish myself in some way. And it would be quite the stretch to even relate it back to Christianity or Jesus at all a different form of social pressure than my elementary years, sure, but social pressure being the primary influence nonetheless. An example is, uh, you know, if I was struggling with my body image or I was feeling less than because I thought I was too big or whatever, I'd choose to give up chocolate or sugar or some other form of restricting my diet that year. To reframe my use of Lent to justify my disordered eating, I recall one year trying to add something to my life rather than take something away. But then that just manifested in adding in more exercise or something as a response to the same insecurities. Couldn't relate it back to Christianity or Jesus at all. (laughs) 
So as I entered adulthood and college, I began thinking more critically about what I believed, what I practiced, and started asking why. I broke up with the tradition of Lent for many years. And like Addie's poem suggested, taking time away was really healing for me and allowed me to revisit the dating scene, if you will, with new boundaries and fresh hopefulness. This year is the first year, uh, the first Lenten season in a really long time that I did choose to give something up for the six weeks. And instead of making my choice based on social pressures, I tried to make as prayerful of a choice as possible. It wasn't for me to post on social media, though I really was tempted. It wasn't to punish myself for the space that my body takes up in the world. My years away from this practice um, empowered me with the strength to ask myself really hard questions and make a much harder choice. What was something that I was consuming in my day-to-day -day life that was interfering with my ability to be with and listen to my holy parent? What was numbing myself from engaging with the revelations that come from quiet meditation that allow space to be with God in the true rhythms of my heart? The answer was scary to sit with. The thought of giving up alcohol for Lent made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up for the exact same reason that I've never attempted a dry January. My dad is an alcoholic. And one of my deepest fears throughout my adulthood has been that, gosh, maybe I could be one too. What if it's hereditary? I'm 30 years old and I'm the youngest of three kids. And my dad uh, has been sober for 10 years this past fall. If you're not already doing the math, <laughs> he started his sobriety journey about a month and a half before my 20th birthday. So I had already moved across the country for college and all three of his children were grown and out of the house. Everyone handles addiction running in their family differently. Uh, for some, it means abstaining entirely from fear of developing or enabling the same habits. For others, and I guess maybe for me throughout my 20s, it meant pretending it just didn't exist. If I never attempted to give up alcohol, I'll never have to discover if it's challenging to give up or not. Sounds really backwards, because it is. <laughs> but it's a lot more common of a train of thought than I might initially think. You may have heard, if I never try, I'll never know if I'll fail. So what's the point? But what does any of this have to do with Palm Sunday? <laughs> For our Cultivating and Letting Go series, I want us to focus today on cultivating active loyalty. The story that we now observe and recognize as Palm Sunday is told in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the same story with their own edits or additions to make points important to their audience, grasping their point of view. But it is the same story nonetheless, and it's the story where Jesus enters Jerusalem surrounded by a celebratory crowd claiming Jesus as king. Luke 19, 28 through 38 goes like this. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached, <laughs> Josh went over the pronunciation of this with me earlier, and now I'm freezing again. <laughs> As he approached Bethage, 
Hey. And Bethany. <laughs> thank you, thank you. At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, uh, which no one has ever ridden. A colt is a young donkey. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you where are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent went and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along, people spreading their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We'll stop there for a second. Did you notice that there's no mention of palm leaves? John 12 only mentions palm branches. Matthew 21 and Mark 11 both mention the crowds having cloaks and palm branches, but Luke 19 only mentions cloaks, omitting palms altogether. Luke 19 also omits some of the other key images that many often think of when remembering this story. Omitting the word Hosanna from the crowd cheers. Omitting clearly stating Jesus' triumphant entry and instead focusing on the movement towards Jerusalem, towards Jesus' impending rejection. There's this quote from the article, Can I Step Up? by Amy Butler. I'll, I'll reference this a lot. I found it through our devotional series. Um, and she says, to keep the narrative moving, all of them needed to get Jesus to Jerusalem to continue the events of the week ahead. Any of them... Luke included, could have accomplished this with a simple verse like, then Jesus said to his disciples, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. And they went. <laughs> Instead, each version of the story is full of symbols that are meant to show us that something bigger and more important than just a first century road trip is going on here. Something political. Is Palm Sunday a protest? A march for justice and peace. The idea that some people are waving palms in the air rejoicing, others laying palms before Jesus on the colts to create this pathway, others taking cloaks off their backs in the same sentiment, this collective, powerful momentum surrounding Jesus to honor, to protect, to celebrate, to publicly support him as king. Imagining this energy on those roads makes me want to wave a palm branch in the air and yell Hosanna. And it reminds me of this church that I went to when I was a kid. They would do these Palm Sunday parades. As we entered the church, drove into the parking lot, there would be these people making this path. And you would drive in and the palms were waving and it was all very, very exciting. I still never learned what Hosanna meant. I looked it up for this sermon, and Hosanna translates to, please save us. That's not what I would have guessed as a kid. By Luke omitting the use of Hosanna in the crowd's cries, in a way he's removing the ask, the plea of those who shouted it. Instead of focusing on people asking Jesus or God for help, Luke 19 focuses on the crowd's praise of what Jesus is representing. Peace. 
when I try to explain the experience of a march or a protest that I've been to to someone who wasn't there, I may specifically mention a meaningful sign for those uh, words that stuck out to me and might not mention that there were flags there too, but they were still there. Someone else at the same march maybe would tell it differently than me. Someone reporting on it may highlight or omit their own versions of the exact same protest. Whether or not the palms were used for what we now know as Palm Sunday, it creates this really beautiful imagery that clearly sticks with us. And so why did I use Luke instead of the other gospels to tell this story? Well, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea that Luke is possibly trying to draw our attention to what this march represents. Yes, Jesus has a triumphant entrance. Luke doesn't deny that it happens, just doesn't focus on it. The entrance itself isn't the only point. The entrance is part of this continued movement towards facing what's to come. And the week ahead isn't all sunshine and rainbows. The light is fading fast, which is exactly what extinguishing the candles each week represents. Yes, this march is filled with excitement and energy, and I don't want to take away from that excitement and energy that we carried this morning in worship. But it's filled with anticipation of something really frightening, too. The focus for Luke isn't on Hosanna or please save us, but instead recounting the fact that Jesus is on his way to do the unimaginable in the name of salvation itself. And it makes me wonder, what can we learn from anticipating Jesus' death and resurrection? I also find it interesting to note that Luke didn't know Jesus personally. His version of the story gives us this political take Whereas Matthew, for example, was one of the 12, so he experienced it firsthand, and so his version might be written with more emotional embellishments than political ones. But Luke 19 continues with these two verses. 39, uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So some context for what is happening here. The story is taking place during Passover, and Passover uh, celebrates the liberation of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. So this is happening during Passover, but in Jerusalem under brutal Roman rulers like Emperor um, Tiberius and Governor Pontius Pilate. And as Amy Butler puts it in her article, because of all the political undercurrents of Passover, it was always Pilate's claim to make sure that the Jews didn't get any ideas of liberation in their head. Don't get ideas of liberation while you're celebrating your liberation. Hmm. And maybe even to get them to buy into the Roman illusion of peace. And Jesus and his disciples are marching into Pilate's territory, certainly disrupts this illusion of peace. Protests disrupt the illusion of peace. Protests can be risky, and imagine what the people in the crowd are risking by showing up in this place, at this time, in this way, calling Jesus king. I also read that this time of year was when 
Pilot made a regular appearance in his own parade of sorts? Hmm. So when warned by the Pharisees and Jesus' response is, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I read a number of different interpretations on this specific line, um, and this line that's only in Luke's version. And I honestly can't tell you if I know for certain what Jesus meant by it, but it's imagery ignites my imagination of stones crying out. Maybe he was referencing that all of creation was made by God, and therefore all of creation is and will praise him. That's a popular interpretation. So if the crowd goes quiet, we would still hear the stones crying out. Maybe Jesus was giving a teasing nod to the seemingly unexplainable natural disasters, the stones crying out, maybe being a warning sign of an earthquake if the disciples are silenced. I don't know. But a thought that I can't shake, and a thought that is just my own, there's no theological backing (laughs) here, just so we're clear, but this thought is that If we're quiet about the injustices happening in our world, our ancestors will turn in their graves, their heartache causing the stones to cry out. Again, this is just where my imagination goes, but I keep thinking, if we can make our ancestors proud, couldn't we disappoint them too? Another quote from Can I Step Up by Amy Butler that I found kind of funny and kind of bleak. Jesus enters Jerusalem overhearing echoes of the crowd across town yelling something like, make Jerusalem great again. And we hear them too. Uh, Benedictine Joan uh, Chittister reminds us, this is the same Jerusalem over which Jesus wept. This is the great society that has forgotten the widow and the orphan, that enthrones the Pharisee and stones the prophets, that speaks of morality while it institutionalizes the immoral. We decree violence and practice it. We talk about equality and deny it. We practice religion and forget the gospel. They're speaking of Jerusalem, but it sounds a lot like the U.S. of A. to me. We practice religion and forget the gospel. That line hits me every time that I read it. I don't want to just go through the motions of religion. I don't want to forget the gospel. I don't want to get stuck in my paralyzing fear and lose the time that I do have on this earth to embody and try to live out the kind of radical love that Jesus shows us. I want to learn to cultivate active loyalty. I don't want to forget the gospel. Giving up something for Lent, if you choose to do it, should be spiritually motivated with the goal to bring yourself closer to God. It's a form of fasting and sacrifice. It's not a required ritual here at Forefront. And I honestly don't even recall many people talking about it in the years that I've been here, and that's, that's okay. But like I mentioned earlier, this year I decided for myself just to give it a shot with the right intentions giving up alcohol with the spiritually motivated intention to bring myself closer to God, it's been really eye-opening for me. I'm not gonna stand up here and (laughs) get on this soapbox telling you all the ways that alcohol is bad for you and why you should stop drinking too. (laughs) 
truth be told, I don't even really plan to continue total sobriety after Easter, at least not right now. That's not um, my journey at this time. But I do plan to bring this new mindfulness to the times that I do choose to drink. Mindfulness, mindfulness that I didn't have before. I was relieved in these six weeks to find out that I didn't experience feelings of withdrawal or really intense cravings. I didn't feel this need to lie or sneak a drink or whatever, make an excuse for drinking even though I said that I was gonna give it up. And I'm really lucky for that. But I do know that the past six weeks have taught me a lot about what I habitually was using alcohol for. I was using it to numb myself from facing the real life hard stuff. Suddenly, when I would think about pouring a drink for that split second before I remembered that I'm fasting from it, <laughs> I would then think about why did I have that instinct to drink right now? And I would pray about it or journal about it, sit in silence thinking about it, thinking about what the real life hard things that I was trying to numb or run from and realize that there's no use in hiding from our creator. If I want to cultivate active loyalty to God, I certainly can't be reaching for numbness first. And even when I do numb myself, once that wears off, the problem is still there and it's untouched and unresolved. Numbing myself stalls and stalls and stalls any action that I could be taking to get closer to God and living out a justice and peace-focused walk through Jesus' example. And I do want to say rest can be a form of resistance. People did go to the um, NAP exhibit um, yesterday. You should check out NAP Ministry on Instagram if you don't follow that already. Um, but when I speak of numbness, don't confuse it with rest. Numbness stalls, rest sustains. And like numbness, noise can make us stall and stall and stall as it drowns out the ability to take action. It makes me think about the noise regarding Trump's indictment, erasing the school shootings from the media, but it doesn't erase the funerals that those parents are planning. Smoke and mirrors, I don't know, that's not what this sermon is about, but the noise of the media can be used to fight for our attention. And for me, it often makes me stall from taking action. Noise is a powerful tool for distraction. Protests are a fantastic way to make important noise, to not be forgotten in the ever-changing news cycle. But after the protest, what action are we taking? How can we step up? Listen, I'm not a poster child for justice work. I know that I have a lot to learn and a lot of room to grow. And I hope that turning to Jesus' example will help me cultivate a more active loyalty in this area. And in true forefront fashion, <laughs> I'm going to ask a number of questions as we near the end of our time with this text today. And these questions are for you to ponder, pray about, maybe answer on your own time with God but some ideas that I'm still noodling on, if you will, are this. What can we learn from anticipating Jesus' death and resurrection? What was Jesus calling the disciples to do in the story? And what is Jesus calling us to do in the present? 
How can we cultivate active loyalty or momentum beyond this Lenten season? How do we make this Palm Sunday and this Holy Week part of the journey and not just the destination? What can we take from Luke's political posture in this story so we can remember both what brings us to Jesus' triumphant entrance and what the march is leading us to? How can we keep that momentum going and not just allow Palm Sunday to be the excitement? Both. How do we hold both and make them both present in our prayer? And another quote from Can I Step Up, this article that I keep referencing, it was so good. Going beyond words, acting out of the radical inward transformation of the gospel message, Jesus asked his disciples to step up, to stand with their cheers and their actions and their very lives, to step up and speak out against the brutality and the violence and oppression and injustice and right on the other side of town that stood in stark contrast to the radical message of the kingdom of God. And our question today is the same. Can I step up? I don't want to forget the gospel. So I ask, how can I step up? I want to invite... Um, some of the band back on stage. And while I end this sermon with another poem, I found this poem on page 38 of the Lenten devotional book. So if you have that at home, maybe go back and reference it today. And it goes along with the series really well. It's called Cultivate. It's a prayer by Sarah R. Tell me again, tell me again to cultivate new life a life where I believe in myself, a life where, dare I say, I love myself. Tell me again to cultivate new life, a life of dancing in the kitchen and slow cups of coffee, a life where Sabbath is viewed as a gift as opposed to a luxury, a life where I trust my own voice and speak words dripping in hope, heavy in love. Tell me again. Tell me again because I will forget. Tell me again because change has never come easy. Tell me again, because on Monday I'll wave palms, and by Friday I'll be at the foot of a cross. So if you can, tell me again of the love that changed the world and my invitation to do the same. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.